The following sermon was delivered on September 19, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Mr. Alexander Dwyer, ministerial intern at Palmetto Hills Presbyterian Church, delivered this sermon entitled, The Anguish of God's People on Psalm 13. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. It is not under the sharpest, but under the longest trials that God's people are most in danger of fainting. So said Andrew Fuller, an 18th century Baptist minister. And consider the pain of biblical examples, two in particular, the pain of Elijah and the pain and suffering of Job. Here were two men of God called to suffer for extreme periods of time. Think of the cry of Job, that statement that often comes to mind when we think of him, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. Or Elijah, after he's sacrificed before the priests of Baal, what does he say? I, even I only, am left. God's people know suffering. They are acquainted with grief and with anguish. The question is not, will we suffer? The question is, how do we endure hardship? How does anguish reach and build to that eternal weight of glory? The central message of this psalm, of Psalm 13, addresses that very question, how will we suffer? And it gives us this answer. David lays before us, even by the inspiration of the Spirit, that in anguish, in suffering, God's people are called, you and I are called to three things. We are called to endure, we are called to petition God, and we are called to worship Him faithfully in anguish. And so you'll notice the text before us, Psalm 13, divides quite naturally into these three sections, verses 1 to 2, to endure, verses 3 to 4, to petition, and verses 5 to 6, to worship faithfully. And you'll notice as the progression of the psalm continues, moving from beginning to end, there is the anguish, the anxiety that David feels in the very beginning. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Slowly, as the psalm goes on, that anxiety is brought before God then in the petition. And then in the very end, as David comes before God in worship, trusting, rejoicing, and singing, that anxiety is calmed in worship. To illustrate this, you might think of a time when you were left, if you were ever left as a child by your parents. Um, If you can remember, I remember I was in first grade, and my aunt left me at school. And I was probably six years old at the time, and I remember just being so anxious. My little heart was pounding, and I couldn't remember, you know, what should I do? Where should I go? And I, but I remember there was one person at school, Miss Cindy. She was in the office, and I ran to Miss Cindy, and I said, you know, how can I get in touch with my aunt? So she grabbed, there were no cell phones, of course, at the time. She grabs the office phone, and she calls up my aunt. And she, my aunt says, oh, I forgot that you were there. So it's now 4 o'clock going on 4.30. And there was this anxiety in my heart that began to, to go away as I hear that voice on the other end of the phone. And then the anxiety totally ceases as my aunt shows up. She picks me up, and I get home to my parents. <laughs> It was like I just, I was totally, totally at peace again. 
And that's what we see in David's psalm, in the psalm that God has given us this afternoon. But that intense anxiety is calmed as God's people come to him in prayer, as God's people come to him in worship. Notice the superscript, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The interesting thing about this psalm, this is not just any psalm in the sense that this is written for the corporate worship of God's people, to the choir master. David wrote this that it might be sung by the people of God in corporate worship. We have this in our Trinity Psalter hymnal. It's also in the Red Trinity hymnal. This psalm is something we ought to sing. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? But not only that, it's a personal psalm of David. He is bringing all of his anxiety, his fear, even the things that might not look altogether. He's bringing those to God, and he's bringing them so that God's people might sing together about that anxiety stilled by God's presence. This context in the Psalter, of course, this comes after Psalms 10, 11, and 12, where we see in Psalm 10 that David has already expressed doubts and fears, but then in Psalm 11, he's nestled those in the righteous character of God. If you look even at Psalm 12, David has shown that the righteous too can suffer. And then here in Psalm 13, he shows the extent to which that suffering can go. The believer's hope is ultimately, and we'll see in the end of this psalm, is ultimately in God's steadfast covenant love to his people. In God's salvation is our hope. And so we see in the first section, verses 1 through 2, that in anguish we are called to endure. How long, O Lord? Just like Elijah endured persecution under Ahab and under Jezebel, Job endured severe turmoil of body, physically, emotionally, the loss of his, his family and his possessions. David here experiences prolonged and bitter anguish. How long, O Lord? That, that refrain is repeated four times. You could translate it almost, how much longer is this going to be? It's a lengthy struggle. Again, notice the emphasis in that first question. Is it forever? This is not hyperbolic language on David's part, but expresses the extreme weight of the anguish that David feels. And he's turning in faith. Where is his hope? Where is his, where is his recourse in this psalm? We might look at that and we say, well, it doesn't seem that he's acting in faith. He's really struggling. He thinks that God has forgotten him. Of course, God didn't forget him. But where is his hope? Where is his trust? It's in the God that he is coming to. And so you'll notice that, of course, he's turning in faith to Jehovah, God of Israel. Not only is the anguish that David is enduring prolonged, but it's also bitter. Will you forget me forever? There's a cry for communion on David's part. But not only that, he asks, how long will you hide your face from me? Think of Numbers chapter 6. The priestly blessing, that God's face is the sign of favor, of God's blessing and promises to his people that he will dwell with them, that his face will shine upon them. David feels not only that God is distant and removed, but also extreme isolation in his own soul, because God's face is that sign of favor. And then in verse 2, we come to that third question. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? 
There is loneliness here. There's sorrow commingled together as David expresses this cry of grief before God. Have you ever felt that way in your soul? Have you expressed that commingling of, of, of loneliness, of sorrow to God? Or when we come in prayer, do we, do we clean up our prayers, so to speak, in a way that we feel is, is, is reverent for sure, but also in a way that, deals, that doesn't deal with the realities that are in our hearts? So often I find in my own prayer life that when I approach God, I come to him as not as I am, not with the struggles that I have, but often with the struggles I want to have, the struggles I think I should have. And what often happens when we do that is we're not, A, we're not dealing with the real root of the sin in our hearts, but B, we're not fundamentally being honest before a God who knows us inside and out. And so when David is saying here, I take counsel in my soul, what do we do? We often run to ourselves for answers to those questions that we won't even bring to God. We run to ourselves to answer those questions that we need answering. In distress, when there seems nowhere else to turn, we look inward. And notice that this, this request, this fear, this struggle and anguish is returning all the day. I think the emphasis here is that it's returning day in and day out. When David wakes up in the morning, it's still there, and it has not gone away. It's a constant returning of grief and anguish. Have you felt, have you known that kind of grief? And I think many of us in this room could say, yes. That kind of grief is real, and it eats away in many ways at your relationship with others, and it can begin to eat away if we're not mindful of our relationship with God. So the fourth and the final how long question then comes as the sort of the highest point of intensity here. Why is the wicked, how long shall the wicked, my enemy, exalt over me? At times the wicked do truly prosper. And we need to acknowledge that. Because often in our prayer life, for me anyway, I don't acknowledge that. I don't acknowledge that the wicked are prospering. But I say, God, I know you're in control. I know you're sovereign. And it stops there. And so I think we need to, as David gives us an example here, to, we need to acknowledge these things are true. To acknowledge before God the realities of the world around us and our own hearts. The devil, of course, for us is our chief enemy. He's called the accuser of the brethren, the one who rejoices when God's people are shaken. Think of Paul's thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians. What's it called? Paul's thorn in the flesh is a messenger of Satan. Sent to tempt him, sent to try to bring him down. And yet Paul says, when I am weak, then am I strong. David, certainly himself, had many enemies, many people even who had abandoned him. You can think of name upon name through David's life of people who had been faithful to him and neglected him in the end. But this in particular, we read from 2 Samuel chapter 23, or 1 Samuel rather, because this, I believe, is the context of the psalm. That Saul, in particular, is the enemy that David is speaking of here. And we'll look at that later, especially as we consider the cry of verse 4, lest my enemies say and lest my foes rejoice. So consider first that we are called to endure prolonged and bitter hardship. We look always beyond these hardships, always beyond our suffering to that time in heaven 
when all things will be made new, when the groanings of our soul, the groanings of creation are set right, when he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And the devil's writhings will be totally ceased. How can we be more sincere? How can you be more sincere in your prayer life before God as you suffer? How can you be more sincere before God's people? Remember, this is a psalm to the choir master. How can you bring, even in worship, before God's people asking for prayer for these kind of struggles? Do you put up the stiff upper lip to pretend as if nothing's wrong? We come into church on Sunday and we act as if everything's fine. When underneath there's turmoil boiling. Struggles of God's people are varied. So cry out to God regarding your spiritual life where there's deadness, where there is no hope, where you have no love for God's word, where you have no desire to come in prayer. Cry out to him. Cry out to him about struggles in your home, struggles with your children, struggles with your schoolwork, struggles with those things that you think are too small, too too detailed to bring to God, things that you think he doesn't care about because he does. These are the struggles of God's people. And of course, we have to temper this. We have to consider what is eternity in light of these things. Of course, we do that. But these struggles are real for us. The struggles in our married life, struggles in our work life, struggles in ministry, struggles, no matter what they be, we bring them to God because this is the state of my heart. Here is what I'm struggling with. Cleanse these through Christ. Help me to see that the joy that I have ought to be in you, and it is not. Help me to survey the cross of Christ. See, brothers and sisters, from Christ's head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flowing mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? For thorns compose so rich a crown. And think of Christ in his sorrow, that there is a mingling of joy and weeping. Hebrews chapter 5 tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayer and supplication with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So when you hear these cries of David, recognize that these ought to be our cries before God as we bring him the realities of our hearts, the realities and the state of our soul. If Jesus himself prayed prayers like this, Dale Ralph Davis puts it this way, how dare you say that you are somehow above these cries? How often my heart thinks that. I think that I'm above, I think in my sanctification, I've moved past it. I ought to. I I feel like heaven is so much better, and it is. The realities of life in this earth, David lays it out before us. How long, O Lord? We need to be honest and bring those to God. Think of Heidelberg questions 37, one that may not be familiar to many of us, but it's it's a wonderful expression of Christ's struggle and suffering on earth, not with sin, but with the realities of sin in the world. During all the time, this says in the Heidelberg, during all the time that Christ lived on earth, but especially at the end, Christ bore in his body and in his soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. 
all the time he lived on earth. That is prolonged anguish. That is bitter anguish. And while David only feels forsaken by God, while we know that God is with us and yet we feel that tension, Jesus Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, was forsaken by his Father. When he cries, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We hear the cries of one who, unlike us, has known true, true forsakenness. And so not only do we see that we are called to endure, but we see then in verses 3 to 4 that we are also called to petition faithfully. Elijah certainly petitioned, and God God tells him that 7,000 of my people are left. Job petitioned, and there's a restoration sevenfold of his not only possessions, but of his children. Bold petitions, faithful petitions are the cry, the instinct of God's people. They ought to bubble over. Prayer ought to be the instinct of faith. And so you'll notice what follows here are three imperatives in the text. Consider, answer, and enlighten. David is pleading with God. These are not imperatives, not as a command as we think in English. These are commands in the sense that David is on his knees. He is pleading with God, consider, answer, and enlighten. Look on me. Help me through the struggles of my soul, of my anguish. And so there's a pleading with God. There's a petition to act as God is asked to look, to act in a way that is uh, equal with his character. God always looks down to evaluate, and then he acts. Think of the Tower of Babel, where God looks and sees, and he goes down. Think of the slavery in Egypt, when God sends Moses, the deliverer. It may seem that God is not looking, that he is not acting, as David implies. And Calvin says, until God actually puts down his hand, he puts forth his hand to give relief. Carnal reason suggests to us that he shuts his eyes and he does not behold us. And that is what David is saying here. This is is the appearance of things on the surface. Carnal reason suggests this to him. But you'll notice something very telling in this same verse. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. He's moved from, O Lord, God of Israel, in the beginning, to, O Lord, my God. That as anxiety is brought before God, as prayer is made, as petitions are brought before the throne of grace, there is an identifying that this is not just the God of heaven and earth, not just the God of his people. This is the God of my people. This is my God who answers prayer. And so the petition that David brings is for God to act And then the petition is to enlighten David's eyes. Think of Jonathan when he takes that dip of honey after the battle. What does the Bible say about Jonathan's eyes? His eyes were lit up. There's energy, there's strength, there's renewal that comes to Jonathan. Send light, David is saying. Send light to my eyes, even as you send the light of the dawn each and every day. Even as God's face, as God's favor, as his eyes look upon his people, Their eyes are enlivened. Their eyes are given light afresh. So David has pleaded with God to act. He's pleaded with God to enlighten. And he now petitions God. He's pleading with God to save him, to deliver him from his enemies. Notice in verse 4, 
lest my enemies take power over me, lest they succeed in their wicked schemes. David acknowledges that it is God alone who stays the hands of death. It is God alone who stays the defeat of enemies or defeating enemies wanting to take you as prisoner, captive, because our whole sole hope for salvation, our entire purpose in life is to bring glory to God as we rejoice in his salvation. And here we see David's real fear. And we get a glimpse into that historical context for the psalm in which David is writing here. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. There's a fear of real imminent death. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's also a fear of a singular focus by David's enemies that they want to see David crushed. They want to see David's downfall. And this is exactly what we see in that passage in 1 Samuel 23, that Saul is pursuing David, and you notice even the language of 1 Samuel 23, it's entirely backwards, where Saul is rejoicing where he ought to be mourning, where Saul is, he's saying, you have blessed me, you have praised the Lord by delivering my enemy into my hand, and it's entirely reversed from the reality at hand. David feels abandoned. He feels isolated. He feels weary of running at this point, And he is sure that Saul will kill him. So we've noticed that even in verses 1 and 2, there is this uh, emotive response that David brings. How long, O Lord? Then in verses 3 to 4, the petitions have been pressed. The logical argument before God has been brought. And in prayer, again, Dale Ralph Davis has a great way with words here. He says that our tears should be falling from our eyes as our arguments are falling from our lips in prayer. Tears from the eyes and arguments from the lips. That is the dual petition of David here. How long? Consider an answer, O Lord. And so our adoption as sons ultimately enables us When we cry, Lord, my God, our adoption as sons enables us to suffer well as we cry out to the God of our salvation, as we bring the arguments to him and we say, act, speak, consider, and enlighten. Because we've already read that God's children in adoption, we are pitied, protected, provided for, chastened by God as by a father, yet never cast off. We have confidence in our king, he will restrain and conquer all his and our enemies. And we pray, thy kingdom come. What do we pray for? We've already prayed it several times this evening. We pray that Satan's kingdom might be destroyed, that the kingdom of grace might be advanced and ourselves and others brought into it. Our confidence is in God and him alone. Consider the words of Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness. But we have a high priest who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That is our hope. That is our petition. That is our plea as we cry, thy kingdom come. And may Satan's kingdom be destroyed. And so... God's people endure, God's people petition, but God's people also worship through anguish. 
verses 5 and 6. Think of Job again. Here at the end of Job in chapter 42, what does he do? The end of all of his suffering, he sacrifices for his friends. And that, we could go into that, that really bookends the book of Job is worship. Worship for his, with his family and worship for his friends. Elijah, too, sacrifices before the, prof, the priests of Baal. There, as a testimony to God's faithfulness, Elijah is sacrificing, worshiping in the midst of grief, in the midst of loneliness, in the midst of total despair. I only, I am left. And yet he worships, and yet he sacrifices. So notice the three aspects of worship that David highlights for us here. Trust, rejoice, and sing. We worship first by trusting. We worship in faith in Christ. It is by faith alone that we comprehend Christ's work of redemption. Faith is God's gift to us. It is God's work in us. Faith is ultimately also in God's faithfulness. Notice verse 5. I have trusted in your steadfast love. This is not a vague notion of trust. It is not the pie in the sky. I hope everything turns out okay. David trusts in God's unfailing, covenant, steadfast, never-ending love. It's that miraculous gospel that David pleads on. It is Christ and him crucified that David looks to here in Psalm 13. Christ's work of redemption is David's hope. Do you believe this evening, as you sit here, do you believe that Christ is your hope? for salvation, not just from the temporary sufferings. David can see, even at this moment, beyond that. And he says, my trust, my hope is in your steadfast love. Is that your hope this evening? Because, dear brothers and sisters, if that is not your hope, then your hope is in something else. Your hope is in an idol. It is in what you wish for, what you hope, what you want, what you hope for, what you wish would happen. And these things are worthless if they are just what we want. And it's not what God has said, then it, is, it counts for nothing. And so cling, if you have not yet, cling to Christ. He is the only hope for salvation for the entire world. And that is exactly what David does here. He clings to Christ. And so we worship by faith. But we also worship with joy. Notice that David says there in verse 5, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. And of course, what is that word salvation? It is the same, same word for Jesus, right? This is Yeshua. This is the one who brings the salvation of God's people. I rejoice even in the midst of despair. Notice that contrast, even intense, from I have trusted, there's that statement of faith, to I will rejoice. There's a commitment to act, a commitment to respond. And this response is always grounded in the salvation of God. Even as our trust is grounded in his steadfast love, our response for the future is grounded in his work of redemption, his salvation for his people. A sign, this sign of rejoicing, this picture of Glorying even in grief is the picture of God's people from Hannah to Miriam, even to Mary. And there's a contrast here with the joy of David's enemies. You'll notice that David's enemies 
are rejoicing even in their own wicked actions. Verse 4, my, lest my enemies rejoice because I am shaken. They're, tr- they're enjoying the results of their labor. But where does David find his joy? It is in God's labor, in God's work, in God's salvation. And so we worship finally in singing. We rejoice and we sing. Even as we begin in a, in a trust, a fundamental belief in God that he alone works in our hearts, it's a gift of God lest anyone should boast, that results in a joy that can do nothing but bubble over in song. The Christian's response to sorrow, dear brothers and sisters, our response to sorrow, to anguish, to pain, to the realities of sin in the world is singing. This is not a feigned joy in song, but a singing that's produced by bearing up, by being held up by God's hand under the realities of suffering, of despair, and of sorrow. Corporate worship, what we are doing this evening, corporate worship is the ultimate weapon against the effects of the devil, against the effects of Satan, because corporate worship points us to Christ. Because in Christ and in him alone, Our hope is found. So look to him, because he is your only hope. Now notice what's changed from the beginning of the psalm to the end. David's situation, what's going on in his life, has, as far as we can tell, not changed. The reality of Saul chasing him in the wilderness is still still going on. Saul seems to still be having the upper hand. David will soon be going into the land of the Philistines, because he has no other recourse. And yet, where is David's joy? His joy is in the God of his salvation. That's the work of the Spirit, brothers and sisters. It's the work of the Spirit, evidenced even in David's life, as he moves from how long, O Lord, the the enduring under real sorrow, to the petitioning, to the worshiping in song. So trust, rejoice, and sing. Do not neglect corporate worship because this is the means that God has given us to deal with and to bear up under suffering even as we trust in Christ, even as he is made more clear to us as we sing through the sorrow. And consider how your suffering can even inform your singing. The story that is so well known of it is well with my soul. And that as, he, as the author of that hymn as the author of It Is Well With My Soul is passing on that ship by the place where his wife and children died in the water, he pens the words to that hymn. How does suffering inform your singing? And ultimately, we are called to remember God's grace, to remember his salvation, to remember his bounty, his covenant love to us in Christ, because that is the only hope that we have of salvation That is the hope we have, even as we suffer. So we see that in anguish, we are called, you and I are called to endure, to petition the throne of grace, and to worship faithfully. Hear the cries of Job, of Elijah, and of many, many more down through the ages, as even David himself, his cries resonate with both a sincere pleading with God and with a trust in his covenant promises to him.
So fight the good fight. Press on, plead, cry out, trust, rejoice, sing, and worship through the weariness. How long, O Lord? And his reply is one of the greatest responses. We get to the end of Revelation, and what does he say? I am coming soon. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.